So you mentioned that this kind of religious education limits your ability to have a complex identity. Yes, that's right. Right? Can you expound on that? Welcome to the Reclamation Podcast. My name is Aldo Martin. And I'm Cousin Eddie. And together, we're going to explore what it's like to be in and leave a religious cult. For more info on the Reclamation Podcast, or to tell your story, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Aldo B. Martin. Um, But also, you know what? It's also a problem because we don't get to live authentic lives. One, we don't understand what it is to live our own authentic life, but it makes us masters of um, what I used to call a lazy Susan self. You know, the lazy Susans in the middle of the table, the little turntable food things. Oh, okay. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? I think I do it like a little, you know, you just... Okay, I get it. Like a little serving tray, yeah. turn it. Yeah, and that turns boom. so that other people around the table. I used to call it a lazy Susan, but my um, but my advisor, my doctoral advisor's name is Susan, and she didn't appreciate that. So I call it a turntable self. We become masters of turning whatever face we need to turn to whoever it is that we're talking to that makes us be acceptable. So if I'm talking to my pastor, I might have one face. So if I'm talking to a you know a friend at school, I might have one face. It's it just, we don't, it just, we don't get to be authentic. We have to wear masks um, because we go, we have to wear masks to show that we are, you know, kind of perfect and, and walking the the yeah. line. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you, um you mentioned that sometimes people get, they get punished yeah. for, be, for being Christians by other Christians. Yeah. Can you expound on that a little? Oh my gosh. Punishment is big. So. That is, I, I the the discipline that I think grounds what I call carceral Christianity. It has to. It's grounded in fear and punishment. So my work conceptualizes carcerality, and the discipline that grounds that kind of religious experiencing is um, punishment and fear, fear and punishment. Because you know, it's like fear of going to hell, right? That's the ultimate stick. You do these things, you go to hell. Um, And then we, it's not only, I should say, it's not only punishment, we're punished for stepping outside of the quote, right boxes, right? But we're also rewarded when we, when we um, do what we're expected to do. Um, So it's a system of rewards and punishments. It's all grounded in fear. Like I know, for example, and I, if she ever hears this, she's going to be, you know, horrified, but my mother, (laughs) my mother, for example, was rewarded because she was a darn good cook and would cook the Wednesday night meals for the church for a long time. So she was rewarded because that's what a good Christian woman does. So, um, and then if you like, for me, I was the kid who always asked too many questions. So that always, a joke gets, gets me on the Wednesday night prayer list, but that's actually not a good thing because it signals to the community that you're off the straight and narrow path. And you need help. And you need help. So, so okay. So that experience is grounded in fear and punishment. And the way we do punishment too, by the way, is through public spectacle. Yes. Like we have got to let everybody know that this person is being punished because it, it is, it's a powerful behavioral controller because if we can make other people afraid and be like, I don't want to be that person, 
kind yeah. of keeps us in check. So yeah, you you know it, it's really it's really funny that you should say that because I I don't identify as a as a Christian anymore, and that's not to downplay anybody that does. I'm just I'm just not there. But you know when you read the Bible, if you've ever read the Bible, anybody out there. And you see Jesus's interaction with people. Mm-hmm. The people that he always called out were the religious leaders. Yeah, it was never the regular people. And yeah. and if we go back to the um, the uh, uh, I believe it was there was a, a woman who was going to get stoned or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and 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 the concept of you know he who has sinned let him cast the first stone, mm-hmm. and then everybody walks away. It's really interesting how churches have forgotten that. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so oh, this, yes. this this concept of 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 calling people out for this and just shaming them for it is is con- I, I think it's counterintuitive or counterproductive to what the Bible teaches. And I'm mm-hmm. just saying this as now an outsider looking in. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Well, and you know, the other piece of that, I feel like I can't talk about fear and punishment without talking about the power dynamics. So if you will, uh, if you will humor me for a second, please power, the power dynamics are, um, they're very institutional. It's, it's, it's the power is external, right? It's not internal to the person. Um, and it's, I call it kind of panoptic power because I, I don't know if you're familiar with the panopticon, but it's a very effective, um, penal architectural structure, literally. It was built, it was conceptualized by Jeremy Bentham in the 1700s, Panopticon, where a prison has a central tower, and then the cells are all built around it. And then at the top of that tower, there's a guard and the prisoners never know if they're being watched. So it has the effect of like, oh my gosh, I don't know that I'm, if I'm being watched. So therefore I better watch myself, right? So it's just very effective at controlling prisoners, but feel the same way about what a carceral Christianity. One of the people that I interviewed called it, it's like having a thousand parents. You're always, always watched. But in addition to that, it's like, like in a prison where your, your personhood is, is contained and controlled and your timetable is, is controlled. And, you know, that is what it was like growing up. I, I mean, Every day of the week, there was something that I had to be, I've heard you talk about this every day, your, your life is controlled by your responsibilities to the church and the people in the church. And it, it leaves nothing to the self because you're always, you know, that controlling piece of it is, um, it's all, it's all consuming, all encompassing. So that focus on the institutional power, and I could go on and on about that, that is a, that's a process. So to go from that to, you know, transformative power is a process, transformative power where it, you're, the power is shifted from external to internal to inside, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's tough when you're grown, when you've grown up with uh, always being accountable to forces outside of you. I mean, there's so many moving parts, right? Yeah. It's a lot that, okay. Can we talk about that? Because the other thing about the cage, and this is not my work. Whose work was this? Oh my gosh, I cannot. I think it may be Adrian Rich. She did a whole thing about the cage. And if you're just, if a person only looks at one wire of the cage, one wire, and they're like, 
look, you could look that wire up and down and you're like, but why isn't the bird going around the wire? Why aren't the, why isn't the bird flying around right in the cage, in the bird cage? You could look at a different wire every day, but if you're only looking at it one wire at a time, you miss the entire structure, the entire like network of, of forces that can kind of conspire to keep the bird enclosed. So yes, it's, we cannot underestimate how many moving parts they are and how effective they are in keeping people kind of in check. Yeah. 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 Keeping them in check. That's a, that's an interesting way of looking at a cage that it's one wire is really part of a network, part of a larger component that keeps you there. So it's not, it's not really the wire that keeps them there, but it's, it's the wire working in in conjunction with the other wires. Yeah, it's the whole structure. Right. And the bird yeah. doesn't know what's going on. The bird is like, yo, what is No. No. And it's like, why can't the bird get around that one wire? Well, you're missing all of the wires around it. You're and that's the whole why story. that's why it's like I you can't just look at the at the teachings, the scripture. You can't just look at the practices. You can't just look at um like the primary religious leaders, because there's a whole network of other people that's part of that power structure. You can't just look at the discipline. I mean, it's, it's the whole thing working together that, that, you know, creates the experience. Um, and on the positive side too, you know, I, I study the dark side of Christianity, but it doesn't mean that I've sworn off, you know, uh, Christianity right. and religion altogether. That's I just right. don't, I don't subscribe to that brand of it anymore. So speaking of that brand, speaking yeah. of that brand, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm, I'm all about quotes today. Oh, I love it. You, you, you shout said- Shout out to quotes. Shout, out, shout sh- out to quotes. <laughs> shout out to quotes. You know, they help. Quotes help. They, they do. So, so you mentioned that this kind of religious education- Limits your ability to have a complex identity. Yes, that's right. Right. Can you expound on that? I sure can. So as a woman, I mean, I can start with just from the perspective of a woman. I mean, I, to be a good Christian woman means that I have to, you know, be married means that I have to have children means that I have to be, have domestic skills. Like I have been in, this became super clear to me one day when I was walking down a hospital hall with my father who had just had a heart attack and he, we, they had had him kind of walking down the hall. And, and I was this, still, is you, this is you as an adult or as a, as a, me as, as an a adult, mm-hmm. me, no, me as an adult. I, thank you. Yes. Me as an adult, probably in my, when I was, let's say 35 to 40, maybe. And the nurse is walking my dad and I'm kind of trailing behind being supportive. And the, the nurse says to my dad, um, you know, who's this with you? This is my daughter, Robin. Um, and uh, something about my, she asked something about uh, my husband and she said, now, what does he do for a living? My dad rattled off both of my husband's titles and just bragged and bragged work titles. And then she said, well, what does your daughter do for a living? And he goes, I don't know, something at OU, something. Now I had been in the same job for 20 years. And he couldn't tell you because it didn't matter because that's not the value that I held in his eyes. My value was as a a Christian woman and all of that stuff was outside of it. And that was a huge part of my identity. And that was devastating. I was like, oh my gosh. At the the moment you felt devastated? Oh, at the moment I was like, how can, how can he not, he doesn't even know me. My thought was my dad doesn't know me. 
And then I thought, well, he doesn't want to know me because the only part that's legitimate to know is the part that makes me the good Christian daughter, the good Christian wife. And as long as I'm tending my house, taking care of my husband and my children, taking care of him, you know, uh, well, he would say attending church. I certainly didn't attend church in the way that he did anymore. But yeah, those are the things that made me legit. So my identity as a Christian daughter and Christian woman was very limited. Very limited, like a single dimension to it. Very, very singular. And so probably 90% of my life, he didn't know. And I thought, you are missing out on so much. But I also knew that that part didn't matter because that wasn't the part that was legit. So that's just through gender. And then God forbid you're an LGBTQ person. You know, our eldest child is trans. And uh, that, I mean, what do you think would happen if... um, if somebody showed up trans in a church, in a church like the church we were raised in. Oh, oh man. First of all, they're not allowed in the door. Exactly. That's, that's one number, thing. That's, that's number, number one. one. So I don't that's even know one. what happens after that because they're not getting yeah. inside. So. They're not getting inside to pollute the population, right? Yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not, people. they're not, they're not welcome phys- phys- physically speaking and li- uh, 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 in a literal sense too, right? That's in a literal right. sense. Yeah. And, uh, and um, I, I'm, I'm right. using my train of thought, but they're not welcome. No, they're not welcome. And they're, you know, the devil has got them and they need Jesus. And, you know, and so like you can't have if you're LGBTQ, you can't be that you can't be a certain kind of woman. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there are racial things that I don't I can't even appreciate. Yeah. Right. Racial yeah. barriers that I can't even appreciate as a white woman in Oklahoma. <laughs> you know, <laughs> speaking of the racial barriers, I always laugh to myself laugh to myself when I see, you know, because there's a lot of um, religious aggression out there where people are really aggressive with their beliefs, in particular with Christianity. And I always laugh to myself and I'm like, man, wait, wait until they realize Jesus wasn't white. Exactly. Hello. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't know what he was, but I just know he wasn't white. So I'm like, man, when they find out that it's going to be I, I, look, when they get to heaven, if they get there, yeah. somebody's going to call for security. <laughs> They're going to ask right. for a refund. They're going to ask to speak to the manager. <laughs> yeah. Aldo, you know, the first time I had my understanding of Jesus challenged, it was one of those um, kind of illuminative moments because I was proselytizing to somebody and he stopped me cold and he said, what color was Jesus? Yeah. And I said, well, white, of course, because that was the Jesus I was raised with, a white Jesus. And he goes, how could it be white? He was a Middle Eastern man. Yeah. Like, how could it be white? I mean, it's like, and I, I just remember going, what? <laughs> I was like, my, <laughs> my whole, <laughs> it's like, what? We got to so take that, all the pictures down. What? What is this? What is- I couldn't even, but you know, that just shows you how effective that my education was. White Jesus was the only legitimate Jesus. I mean, I had been taught that. I couldn't even conceive that Jesus was anything other than white. The only possibility, right? The only possibility. Oh, the like, only possibility. Like, what yeah. else? Are you kidding me? Like, what else What else could it be? But, but to your point, but to your point, there's these identities that all of us have and, and that are not necessarily accepted within yeah. some of these organizations. So you were saying how... As a woman, you were only seen in one dimension when you were yeah. much more than what people thought, right? Yep. Um, you mentioned your what one of your children is is trans and mm-hmm. how that's not accepted off the rip 
That's not even oh, a discussion. Sure. It's not even for a discussion. Sure. And even being a black person, yeah, would black people be accepted? Sure, but I feel like to a certain extent, to a yeah. certain extent, because mm-hmm. there's no way that the God that we worship can look anything like like myself, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. it's there's there's a lot there's a lot to and, be said. And can I also say that it's very limiting to men because men are expected to be a certain way, biblical manhood. And God forbid you want to be a stay-at-home dad. I mean, oh. you know, like, do you know what I mean? So Don't it's you limiting. Dare. Don't you I dare. know. I mean, that is that is not the house, the head of the household, right? You, so you, it's limiting to everybody. You, you know, you you uh, one of the people that you interviewed in your podcast, um, the pastor from Oklahoma is that his name? Oh yeah, Jeremy Coleman. So He's a lot awesome. of this, a lot of the stuff he says is so revolutionary but simple yes because it's really it's really not revolutionary it's just it's just commonsensical and and to give the audience a um a uh a a, an idea of what this gentleman says and i'll definitely put his links or actually the links to your interview with him uh on your podcast in in the description of this episode but he says things like i audience ready for this you ready for this you ready for this here we go. This is going to be controversial. I don't know if you're ready. He says things like, well, why should a woman have to change her dress code around me mm-hmm. as if my quote unquote purity is her responsibility? Exactly. I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. that's that's what I got from it because it's yeah. like, it's, it's because what it's also telling men is that uh, you're not responsible. Right. If you, you sin, because if you sin, because this woman is wearing whatever she's wearing, that is her fault. Exactly. And her sin, that sin is on her. That's right. So I grew up being, you know, like covered head to toe, basically trying to prevent that from happening because I didn't want, well, one, I didn't want that attention, but I didn't want that sin on me. And I thought it was my fault because that's what I had been taught. Yeah. That it's the woman's fault. Yeah. Man. And, and- I feel like we we could talk about all these little topics uh, by themselves, right? Just by themselves. So you discuss trying to find yourself after being in a binding uh, belief system. Yeah. Let's talk about how you freed yourself from this way of thinking. Ooh, Um, it took some work. I mean, I did it. uh, There are lots of pieces to that transformative healing, uh, started with therapy, big believer in therapy and not going to, to see somebody in my church, not a counselor at the church, <laughs> uh, because that's what, you know, that was the first thing I got criticized for is seeing somebody outside the religion to, to try to help me. Um, but therapy, I'm a huge journaler. I, I, I think a lot. I probably overthink a lot because overthinking is a, is is a trauma response. I don't know if people think that, uh, understand that, but no, overthinking explain, is, explain. well, overthinking is a trauma response and certainly uh, to religious trauma as well, because when you are in a situation where you're always having to be hypervigilant about, am I doing the right things? Am I saying the right things? Am I believing the right things? Is God seeing this? Is, is, or my teacher saying like, it's just, then, um, then you're always in your head, 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 head. So that overthinking is a trauma response. And so I have to, uh, have to be real, 
I have to be, I still have to be pretty diligent about not trying to overthink things. I kind of drop into my heart self, you know, cause I'm, I'm was, just grew up in my head all the time. Also, I was trying to survive. I think being a, a, a carcerolite is what I call us a carcerolite um, keeps us, you know, in survival politics. I just think we're trying to survive the best way we know how. And so uh, being able to anticipate is helpful. And that means having to be in your head. So that's helpful. So, so And so you mean like survive within these religious communities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you probably spend a lot of time thinking about, am I contacting, contacting enough people? Am I bringing enough people into the church? Am I saying the right kinds of things? Am I dressed okay? What does my hair look? I mean, like, there are just so many things that like, God. How did you, how did you know? How did you know? Because it's you know? universal. It's universal. There we go. So I am. Um, so journaling and reflecting, that was a big part to me. Also, you know, there are these teachers that show up when you need it. There are teachers that just drop into your life. They can say something profound, like the guy who challenged me on the color of Jesus. So you don't mean like an actual professional no. teacher. You just I mean, mean some, like a teachable moment. Teachers everywhere. They could be formal teachers or they could be teachers, the random and teachable moments. Yes. Like that guy who asked me that question that he was a teacher, um, because he planted a seed that took root. And I was like, yeah, you know, um, so there are all of these moments that I just really grabbed onto. Um, and then there were really transformative people for me, people who, you know, I remember the first time that a religious leader, validated my questioning and I a, a religious a religious leader. A religious leader so he was a he was a priest on campus for the Episcopal church he was the Episcopal priest on on our campus and he was the first person who validated my questioning about God and about and I couldn't believe it I couldn't do, you, do you remember you remember it. what your question was next time on the reclamation. So like my questioning and my seeking was just me trying to get closer to, get clearer about, you know, get friendly with, I don't know. I had had such a damaged perspective of God. I don't know. It just, I felt so disconnected from God. I just felt so disconnected. So right. I love this distinction and, between us. Yes. And, and so, and, and, and we, we wound up um, uh, uh, coming to the same conclusion but our entry points were different, right? So the system is powerful. System is powerful. 